Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 327, Dr. Lacona's historical case that Jesus considered himself to be God, part two. In this episode of the Trinity's podcast, I'll continue to interact with Dr. Mike Lacona's 2017 apologetics lecture, in which he argues that looked at historically, we must conclude, given our evidence, that Jesus claimed to be God. Last week, we heard him make his case for what he called key truth number one, which is that the earliest Christians, at least probably, thought that Jesus was God, as in fully divine and therefore God himself, the one true God, the Lord God Almighty, Yahweh. In this second portion of his talk, Dr. Lacona will argue that the best explanation, or at least a plausible explanation for the disciples thinking that, is that the historical Jesus claimed to be God himself. Now, before we get back to the rest of Dr. Lacona's presentation, I want to go back to a theme from our previous Trinity's podcast episode, which was my frustration in trying to interpret what Dr. Lacona could possibly mean by saying that Jesus, quote, is God. And I happened to briefly discuss this with my friend Aaron Schellenberger in Florida. See Trinity's podcasts 254, 255, and 256 if you want to hear more from him. He was at one time a student of Dr. Lacona, and he said, hey, if you're doing an episode on his views on the deity of Christ, be sure you check out this debate he had with Dr. Dale Martin. And so I did. This was a 2012 debate held at Acadia Divinity College in Canada. And even though I guess it was some years before the talk that we're dealing with, it was a different version of the same presentation. But I couldn't help but notice that Dr. Lacona stated his thesis differently when to a scholarly as opposed to a lay audience. Let's listen to some snippets from his presentation. It's historically more probable than not that Jesus claimed to be God in some sense. God in some sense. There are two key truths that render it more probable than not that Jesus claimed to be God in some sense. So I'm not going to go through the whole presentation, but notice that to a popular audience at an apologetics conference, he just says flat out that Jesus is God, which suggests that they're numerically identical, but doesn't require it. Now he's saying Jesus is God in some sense, which who knows what that requires. Being God in some sense is compatible with being God himself or with having a divine nature, but it's also consistent with just being like God or being such that he can be addressed as God. And so one might be a couple of different kinds of Unitarian Christian and just agree that Jesus is God in some sense. I'm not sure he realizes that. Maybe when he says that, he's thinking that it would rule out mere man views but I don't see why it would. But that's not all he says. Let's pick it up then in part of his presentation about Philippians 2. A third element to observe in this hymn is the end result of getting that title. And here the hymn borrows from Isaiah chapter 45, where God says, I am God, the only God. There is no other God but me. Me, a certain self. After saying this statement and repeating it over and over, he says it a total of five times, 
God who identifies himself as the Lord says, every knee will bow to me and every tongue profess to God. It is this text that the hymn applies to Jesus. And what will every tongue profess? The title above all others. Jesus Christ is Lord. In other words, Jesus Christ is Yahweh himself. Okay, if Jesus is God himself, then God is a self, and Jesus is a self, and those are the same self, which entails that they are just numerically one. That's the interpretation I've been going on for his talk about Jesus being God. Now, if he's just going to say Yahweh himself, why qualify over and over that Jesus is God in some sense? Well, I think it's because in the scholarly guild, it's widely observed that it's just a mistake to completely collapse together Jesus and God, as if those are just two names for the same reality. A little later in the talk, he tries a different angle to add some clarity. And unfortunately, I'm afraid it falls flat. Richard Bauckham of Cambridge University writes, Early Judaism had clear and consistent ways of characterizing the unique identity of the one God and thus distinguishing the one God absolutely from all other reality. When New Testament Christology is read with this Jewish theological context in mind, it becomes clear that from the earliest post-Easter beginnings of Christology onwards, early Christians included Jesus precisely and unambiguously within the unique identity of the one God of Israel. And nobody knows what that means. Is it just that he's God himself? Or is it supposed to be that he's a part of God or a member of the group which is God? It's just by design unclear, as I discuss in my published paper on Bauckham's Bargain, which is also Trinity's Podcast 13. See also Trinity's Podcast 213 and 214 for more trying to figure out what on earth Bauckham means by these confused and confusing neologisms that he has coined in recent years. Back to Dr. Lacona's debate, turns out Jesus isn't the only character in the Bible who is God in some sense. The apocalyptic Son of Man is an enigmatic figure in the Jewish and biblical literature. It's the Son of Man who presides over the final judgment, who from his glorious throne will wipe away all evil, ruling over all who in turn will worship and serve him in a way that belongs only to the God who shares his glory with no one. Right, with no one else, which suggests that anyone who gets religious worship just is that same self as God, and so is numerically identical to God. According to Q4, Jesus recognized this when he told Satan, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. That particular word translated serve here appears just over 130 times in the Bible, with only one exception where Israel is said to serve her enemy. The term serve is always used to refer to an act done for a deity, such as prayer, fasting, and temple service. So Jesus recognized that this type of service is meant only for God. Yeah, but then why are there two objects of worship in both Philippians 2 and in Revelation 5? But let's let him continue. In Daniel 7, Jesus, uh, God hands over everything to this apocalyptic son of man yes. so that all God may serve him. Over. Same word. Although some ambiguity remains, the apocalyptic son of man figure appears to be God in some sense. <sighs> God in some sense. 
right? There's other indications he thinks that the kind of deity in question is just being God himself, but that wouldn't seem to apply either to Jesus, who relates to God as to somebody else, or to this one like a son of man from Daniel 7, who's brought into God's throne room and given all these wonderful things and wonderful status by God, who seems to be someone else. Here's how Dr. Lacona summarizes his case in that debate. In conclusion, the thesis I'm defending is this. There are two key truths that render it more probable than not that Jesus claimed to be God in some sense. Key truth number one, the earliest known Christian generation and one that was most plausibly connected to the apostles regarded Jesus as God in some sense. Key truth number two, the best explanation for this view of Jesus is that he claimed to be God in some sense. This is why I regard it as being historically more probable than not that Jesus regarded himself as God in some sense. Now, this position is so systematically unclear, so designedly unclear. How would one decide whether or not it fits the New Testament evidence or whether or not it best fits the New Testament evidence or just best fits all of our evidence, everything that's said and not said about Jesus in early Christianity? I don't know. It seems to be so vague as to not be an evaluable theory. Now, happily, at the end of the debate, someone comes up with the really obvious question, which the moderator passes on to Dr. Lacona. And his answer, I think, is interesting and telling. Please qualify what you mean by in some sense in reference to Jesus' deity. Well, that, that's a good question. That, that's tough. Uh, I, you know, I think, I guess if I were to say, uh, I, I would, I mean, I don't know that the New Testament authors are crystal clear on this, and that's why I, I want to state this as uh, a, a, a preciseness to the ambiguity. Um, <laughs> I, I, if I could put it this way, I'd say, um, if God has some sort of a divine DNA, Jesus shares that DNA. Well, why make up new replacement language for traditional Catholic creedal talk about Jesus being one person who has a divine nature and not only a human nature, and for Jesus and the Father sharing the same usia or essence? Why all this deliberate fuzz talk about Jesus being God in some sense. And then when pressed, now we fall back on this new talk about Jesus has God's DNA if it should make sense to describe God as having DNA. I mean, I think he means it metaphorically. I take it it's because he doesn't want to commit a sin of anachronism in interpreting the New Testament. In other words, projecting 4th century ideas back into 1st century texts where they don't belong. So what he does is he suggests that these authors are confused about Jesus and God. They're just none too clear about in what sense Jesus might be, quote, God. So he wants to interpret them with that same unclarity which he thinks was in their minds. Notice how uncharitable this is to the authors of the New Testament, that they are really confused about Jesus and God. They think Jesus is God in some sense, but what, wait, does that make him the same God as the Father? Does that make him a part of God? Does that mean he has multiple natures? I don't know. I guess they didn't know. 
in these matters, I find that confusion loves confusion, and confusion is happy to project confusion onto the sources on the assumption that this is the only way to get them right. The way I look at it, and for more on this theme, see podcast 189, I don't think they were confused at all. I think their view is that the one true God is the Father alone. Jesus is a miraculously conceived man who is God's special Messiah, now raised and exalted to a shockingly high position. Bottom line, Dr. Lacona doesn't really know what he wants to say about the relationship between Jesus and God in the New Testament. On the one hand, he just collapses together the Father and the Son into the same person. In the New Testament, Yahweh turns out to be the one that Jesus prays to as Father. But then he says Jesus is Yahweh himself. Well, that would make Jesus the Father himself. I don't think that's a very good reading of the New Testament. It's also heretical modalism, even by Trinitarian standards. At other times, I think he wants to make more room for some sort of Trinity theory, and he realizes that you can't project the 4th and 5th century formulas back into the 1st century. And so he just talks unclearly about Jesus being God in some sense. But that's not even an intelligible suggestion about how to understand the New Testament. It doesn't look like it's even clear enough to be qualified to be the best understanding of what's going on there. I guess in his mind, he doesn't think there's a big difference between these two ways of putting his point. But there's a massive difference between saying that Jesus is Yahweh himself, which directly and clearly implies that Jesus and Yahweh just are one and the same, that they're numerically identical. There's a huge difference between saying that and saying that Jesus is, quote, God in some sense. Because, yeah, probably just about any Christian view, heretical or orthodox, would agree that Jesus is, quote, God in some sense, even biblical Unitarians like me. When the Trinity's podcast continues, we'll hear the rest of Dr. Lacona's 2017 Apologetics Lecture. Let's pick it up where he's reviewing what he calls these two key truths. And as we go along in this episode, I have shortened a few sidetracks and repetitions and things like that just to keep this episode of manageable length. So I've kept everything really of substance in his talk, but have just slimmed it down slightly. Key truth number one, the earliest Christians, Jesus' apostles, regarded him as divine. And notice This is not at all to assume that the Bible is reliable, is it? It's just to take it and say, what can we get out of it, looking at it as historians? What is it that we can know with certainty without saying that this is divinely inspired? Just looking at it as a historian, what can we conclude? We can certainly conclude that the earliest Christians regarded Jesus as God. That's key truth number one. That leads us to key truth number two. The best explanation for key truth number one is Jesus claimed to be divine, as evidence in the New Testament suggests. We think about it. 
If the earliest Christians who were pious, monotheistic Jews were claiming within just a few years of Jesus' death that he was God, where do you think they got that idea? If Jesus never claimed to be God, why are all the leaders, those who walked with him, those who were out proclaiming the message, why are they saying he's God? Well, that'd be a good question. It wouldn't make sense of pious Jews. If they actually thought that. The only reasonable explanation is that Jesus made such claims. And I think we could just stop right there and say, there's our case that Jesus claimed to be God. The earliest Christians were saying he was God. And the most plausible explanation is that Jesus himself made such claims. But then we say, well, is there any evidence in the New Testament that he actually claimed to be God? Yeah, there is. Let me give you some of that evidence. And I'm going to break this into uh, two things, biography and son of man. Let's look first at biography. Most scholars today think that the Gospels are ancient biographies. Now, there's different kinds of genres. There's history, there's biography. You go to the Old Testament, there's the historical books of the Old Testament, like Samuel King's Chronicles. There's what's called wisdom literature. You've got your prophetic books. You come to the New Testament Acts as a history of the first three decades of the Christian church. You've got your epistles, your letters. You have Hebrews, which is a homily, a sermon. You've got Revelation, which is called apocalyptic literature, much on the same lines as like 1st Enoch, 4th Ezra. So it seems like when the Bible's written, God used the authors to write according to a genre that was contemporary with their time. So if they wanted to write about Jesus, wouldn't you use biography? (laughs) Of course you would. And we've got good reasons to think that the Gospels are ancient biographies. Gospels are on one main person, Jesus. That's what a biography does. In an ancient biography, you had a little bit typically that discussed the ancestry of that person, and then it launched into that person's, the inauguration of their public life. So it shouldn't at all surprise us that there's very little about Jesus' childhood. It goes along the same kind of path that most ancient biographies did. A little about the person's lineage, where they came from, and then boom, right into their adulthood. Ancient biographies were typically around 10 to 20,000 words. Sometimes they could be a little less or a little bit more. There was no television then. And the way that they learned and were entertained would be through the performance of reading literature, usually after dinner or uh, an, an oral tradition that was repeated. Uh, that would typically be memorized. And so you would read this biography in a single setting. It would take a few hours to do, but that's what you did at night. You listened to someone read it or recite it as an oral performance. So the Gospels are that length as a typical biography would be. The main subject's character is illuminated through their words and deeds. This is really interesting. There's a lot of questions that I found that I had with the Gospels, but once I viewed them through the lenses of ancient biography, some things just came to light that astonished me. Many skeptics out there will say that there's an evolution of the view of Jesus in the Gospels, that Mark's Gospel is the earliest, and he presents Jesus as a human, as the Messiah. And then as you go up, You come to Luke, and he's the son of God at that time. And you come to John, and boy, he's full-blown God and deity, but not in Mark. Well, watch this when we read Mark as ancient biography. I'm going to show you in a minute. But I want to tell you a little of why we look at this. And this comes from Plutarch, who lived between around the year 40 and just after 120. Much of what we know from the ancient world comes from Plutarch. In 
the most frequently cited passage in Plutarch, his biography of Alexander the Great. Here's what he wrote. Chapter 1, he says, it is not histories that I am writing. He's not going to write a history, but lives. Lives was their way of saying biography. They didn't use the word biography. They said lives. He says, I'm writing lives. And in the most illustrious deeds, there is not always a manifestation of virtue or vice. Nay, a slight thing like a phrase or a jest often makes a greater revelation of character than battles where thousands fall or the greatest armaments or sieges of cities. Accordingly, just as painters get the likenesses in their portraits from the face and the expression of the eyes, wherein the character shows itself, but make very little account of the other parts of the body, so I must be permitted to devote myself rather to the signs of the soul in men, and by means of these to portray the life of each, leaving to others the description of their great contests. What Plutarch is saying here is, I'm not writing the histories here. I'm writing biographies. And the objective of a biography is just like a painter is painting a portrait of a person, and they want to communicate through their eyes and so forth the kind of personality this person had. Plutarch says, I'm going to try to do this in my biography of the person. So don't get on me if I leave out important battles that this guy fought as a general. I'm trying to tell you who this person was, what they were like, what was the nature and essence of this person. That's what I'm focusing on. Now keep that in mind as we do a really quick view through the Gospel of Mark. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Lacona gives an overview of what most scholars consider to be the earliest life or biography of Jesus, which is the Gospel according to Mark. Mark chapter 1, it opens by saying, as Isaiah the prophet said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight the paths of our God. And notice he's not talking about Jesus coming to do that for God. He goes on in that chapter 1 to talk about John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus. Mark chapter 1 pretty much opens up and saying, hey, John the Baptist is coming to prepare the way for God, Jesus. This is just another textbook case of the fulfillment fallacy. If you look at what the author's overall thesis is in this book, which he hammers in numerous ways, which I've talked about in several Trinity's podcasts, namely episodes 305 through 307, his main clearly stated thesis is that Jesus is God's Christ, that is to say, God's Messiah, also called the Son of God. That's his thesis. Now, what is the chance that would be his clear, explicit, emphatically repeated thesis if really he thinks that Jesus is God himself? Think about it. That's super unlikely. 
Why would he pull his punch on this most important point and always say this much lesser claim that Jesus is God's Christ, if indeed his view is really that Jesus is God? So either in chapter 1, Mark thinks that Jesus is fulfilling this prediction about God coming to his people because God is coming through Jesus, or he thinks that there is a meaning here which has to do not with God, but with Jesus. That seems to be the most plausible reading that the Lord mentioned here is Jesus. For more on this, you can see my debate with apologist Anthony Rogers, which is podcast 316 and 317, and then some follow-up thoughts, 319 and 320. Okay, but he's giving a lightning overview of the whole book. He's going to be saying, hey, this whole book just has Jesus being God. I mean, it's just everywhere in this book. So he moves on to chapter 2. Chapter 2. Jesus forgives the sins of a paralytic and then heals him. And the Jewish leaders say, you can't forgive sins. Only God can do that. That's blasphemy for you to say that. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus said, yep. Oh, man. Jesus said, yep. A very contentious gloss on the text. A very contentious, and I think totally wrong-headed comment on it. Here's the relevant part. Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this fellow speak in this way? It is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus said, yep, that's why you should conclude that I am the one God. No, no, no. Verse 8, at once Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were discussing these questions among themselves. And he said to them, why do you raise such questions in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, stand up and take your mat and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, stand up, take your mat and go home. And he stood up and immediately took the mat and went out before all of them, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Now, the point here isn't that Jesus is God, but rather that Jesus has authority from God. He is really an emissary from God, and he has the authority both to heal and to forgive sins. And so to show that he has authority to forgive sins, he heals the guy. He is not agreeing with their claim that only God can forgive sins. He's implicitly disagreeing with it by showing that he has been given authority by God to do these things. Now, Mark doesn't make it as clear as it could be. There, I think, have always been readers who hear Jesus' opponents say this thing, and then because it's not directly contradicted, they think that the author's point is that we should agree with what these opponents of Jesus are saying. No, that's not right. And so, just to clarify a little bit, Matthew adds one more element to the story, which is kind of crowd reaction and clarifying what conclusions the crowd is drawing from this incident. So, in Matthew 9, 8, he writes, When the crowds saw it, they were filled with awe, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to human beings. Right, to human beings like Jesus. So they don't conclude that he's God, but they conclude that God is with him, that God really has given him the authority both to heal and to forgive. Okay, but let's continue our run through Mark. Chapter 3. The Jewish leaders accuse Jesus when he's exercising demons. They say, and you're casting out, you're Satan casting out Satan. 
And Jesus gives this little parable, and he says, hey, if you want to go in, there's a strong man, and you want to go in and rob his house, you can't do it unless you first bind the strong man, and then you can go into his house and plunder his goods. And Jesus, by that, is saying, the strong man is Satan. And when you see me expelling demons and doing exorcisms, that shows I'm only able to do that because I have bound Satan, and now I'm plundering his kingdom. People who are enslaved by Satan, I'm setting them free. And I can only do that because I've bound Satan. What human can bind Satan? A human who has been empowered by God to do so. This strikes Dr. Lacona as being something which would be inexplicable unless Jesus were God, but he's just ignoring the Jewish background assumption that God can empower people to exorcise demons and even to, in some sense, bind Satan himself. In the context, people are accusing Jesus of being in league with Satan. They say he has Beelzebul, and by the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons. Is this a claim to be God because only God could bind the devil? No. The background assumption is clear, and if it's not clear enough, when Luke goes to give his version of this incident, he adds another argument in the mouth of Jesus. So in Luke 11, he has Jesus say, Now if I cast out the demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your exorcists cast them out? Right? Are they doing it by Satan too? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out the demons, then the kingdom of God has come to you. God's finger, that is to say, God's power, which God has given to him. So in the widely used InterVarsity Bible Background Commentary New Testament volume, Dr. Craig Keener comments on this verse in Luke and says, God's finger represented his power. Although the phrase occurs elsewhere, Jesus alludes especially to Exodus 8.19, where Pharaoh's magicians, attempting to imitate Moses' miracles, are forced to admit that the true God is working through Moses, but not through them. End quote. Just as Moses could do miracles through the finger of God, so Jesus, the prophet even greater than Moses, can do miracles by the finger of God. Not, of course, by his own power. He's a man but by the power of God, which shows that God is with him and that it is indeed God's kingdom, God's rule, that Jesus is announcing and spreading. Chapter 4. Jesus is on the boat and he's asleep. And the boat's getting ready to go under and the disciples wake him up and he goes up and he speaks and the winds and the waves calm. Well, according to Psalm 89, Psalm 107 and Ecclesiastes 8, calming the wind is something God does. Right, but if God does a certain thing, and Jesus does that same sort of thing, it doesn't follow that Jesus is God. Right, so the argument that God can calm the wind and the waves, and Jesus calms the wind and the waves, therefore Jesus just is God, that's a totally worthless argument, because it's invalid. The conclusion doesn't follow from the premises. It could be true that God calms the wind and the waves, and also true that Jesus calms the wind and the waves, you know, by the finger of God, and yet it's false that Jesus just is God, right? It could be that God's empowering Jesus to do this. And it's invalid, not because of anything about God and Jesus, but just the form of the argument is invalid. Here's an argument with the same logical form. God loves babies. My friend Emily loves babies. Therefore, my friend Emily is God. 
No, two different beings, two different ones can have a characteristic in common or can do the same action, right? Now, if we want to turn this into a valid argument, we can do that by adding one word, and that word is only. So premise one would be only God calms the wind and the waves. Premise two, Jesus calms the wind and the waves. Then the conclusion, therefore, Jesus just is God. Now, that conclusion does follow from those premises. But the problem is there's no reason to think that only God can calm the wind and the waves. It's utterly implausible. In the passages he gestures at, Psalm 89 and Psalm 107 and Ecclesiastes chapter 8, don't say that only God can calm the wind and the waves or anyone who can calm wind and waves just as God himself. They don't say that. They don't support it. They don't imply it. They don't presuppose it. This theme in the Old Testament is a way of emphasizing God's power and authority and sovereignty over the natural world. So Psalm 89, O Lord God of hosts, who is as mighty as you, O Lord? Your faithfulness surrounds you. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. So even that scary, powerful thing, the sea, even that is subject to God. But not only does it not say that only God rules over the sea, But later in this very psalm, in Psalm 89, it seems to get into a messianic prophecy. Starting in verse 20, I have found my servant David. With my holy oil I have anointed him. My hand shall always remain with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name his horn shall be exalted. Right, I'm going to make him powerful, basically. Next verse, I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. Right, so he too will rule over the dangerous waters under God. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. I will make him the firstborn the highest of the kings of the earth. So in this very passage, perhaps originally about David, but maybe also a prophecy about the descendant of David, who could be called David, who is the Messiah, either or both ways, in this very passage, it talks about God giving somebody else sovereignty over the sea, which should not surprise any reader of the Jewish Bible, right? Exodus 14 God has Moses do this miracle where he lifts up his staff and holds it up in his hand and the sea divides. And then when Moses puts the staff down, the division of the sea collapses and it kills all the Egyptians. So here you have Moses, you know, exercising, you could say, control or sovereignty over the sea. Yeah, but by the finger of God. Now, it seems to me that Dr. Lacona anticipates this obvious objection that things you might think only God could do, actually God could authorize and empower someone else to do those things. Yes, even human persons, even human prophets, even the human Messiah, Jesus Christ. So I think he tries to head off this sort of obvious and compelling rebuttal in what he says next as he goes on to chapter 5. Chapter 5. Jesus raises someone from the dead, which, according to Ecclesiastes 8, only God can raise someone from the dead. They say, wait a minute, Mm -hmm. Peter raised someone from the dead, Paul raised someone Mm -hmm. from the dead. What about Elijah and Elisha? Yeah. Yep. All these raised people from the dead, but they did so 
by praying, and they did it in the name of Christ, appealing to God. Jesus did it on his own power and his own word. Okay, so notice that nowhere does this text say that Jesus raised the dead by his own power or by his own authority and not by the power and authority of God. Nor does it say that no prayer by Jesus was involved here. What he's talking about is this incident where one of the leaders of the synagogue named Jairus or Jairus comes to him and says, hey, my daughter is on the point of death. Please come and heal her. So Jesus starts heading that way, but then he's intercepted by people who say, hey, the daughter's dead. Why should we trouble the teacher any further? And then, yeah, to make a long story short, Jesus raises the girl back to life. He just tells her, little girl, get up. That's consistent with Jesus doing this on his own power without any help from anyone else. It's consistent with that, I think. But again, the background assumption is that it's God that's empowering Jesus. Keep in mind that in this book so far, no one, neither the narrator nor any character, whether a good guy or a bad guy, no one has drawn the conclusion that Jesus is God himself, or just that Jesus has the divine nature, is fully divine, etc. The background assumption kicks in that it's God who's empowering Jesus' ministry. That's why, in 519, Jesus tells the formerly demon-possessed man, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and what mercy he has shown you. Not tell your friends what mercy I have shown you, but rather about the mercy shown to him by the Lord God. Of course, working through Jesus. Now, as we've discussed in the New Testament, kurios, Lord, can refer to God and it can refer to Jesus, and it can even refer to lesser ones than those. But it is ambiguous, so we should ask the question, is Jesus here just referring to himself in a roundabout way as the Lord, or does he have in mind the Lord God Almighty, that is to say, the Father? Commenter R.T. France, in the New International Greek Testament commentary on the Gospel of Mark, is typical for recent commenters on this gospel. He says about this, In this narrative context, hakurios, the Lord, used in Jesus' words as a third-person designation of the one who is the source of eleos, of mercy, must surely refer to God rather than Jesus himself. Luke has explicitly hatheos. Right, so when Luke tells the story, just to make sure that you don't confuse the Lord Jesus with the Lord God, Luke takes out Lord and puts the word God in. The meaning is the same. Luke has just removed this ambiguity. And you can tell by looking at all of Luke's book, by the way, that he does distinguish between the Lord Jesus and the Lord God. He's well aware of that ambiguity in the term, kurios, Lord. And France says that, however, naturally later Christians might understand it to refer to Hakurios, Jesus, to the Lord Jesus. The only other place in Mark where Hakurios could be read as a title of Jesus is 11.3, where that sense that Hakurios, the Lord, refers to Jesus is equally improbable. Okay, so the overall picture is clear, but there's even more clarity in this very chapter. The author's point is not that we should think Jesus is God, but rather that he's not God, but somebody else who's very important, that is God's Christ. That's why in this chapter, in verse 7, a demon-possessed person yells out, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. 
And notice that no one corrects this demon. No one jumps in and says, hey, you can't trust what demons say. For some reason, this demon knows who Jesus is. And it's not God himself, but rather he is the son of the Most High God. And the son of God is a Christological title. Okay, so despite all of this, all these indications in the same chapter... Dr. Lacona fixates on the fact that in the story of raising Jairus' daughter from the dead, it doesn't mention Jesus praying or that God is guiding and empowering Jesus. But the author doesn't need to mention God's role there. It's just a background assumption which is understood by all. And by the way, the idea that Jesus did his miracles by the power of God's Spirit is a standard Trinitarian exposition of the Gospels. In other words, people who think that Jesus has a divine nature still think that, for some reason, maybe some would say because he's given up the exercise of his divine powers, but at any rate, they agree that Jesus does his miracles by the power of God's Spirit, not on his own power, whether you're talking about his human power or his divine power. So this isn't some kind of Unitarian talking point. The odd man out here is Dr. Lacona who is so eager to find an argument that, quote, Jesus is God, that he seizes on this detail that there's not an explicit mention of prayer and says, hey, clearly he's doing it by his own power. Well, that's far from clear. Did Jesus pray during this time? Well, there isn't any report of his praying out loud, but, you know, we know, especially from Luke, that Jesus regularly went out alone to pray, and he very well could have prayed, and God could have guided him that this was going to come about. Right? He's not just winging it or taking a chance, I take it, when he says the child is not dead but sleeping, and then he goes in there to raise her, like, presumably God has guided him to do this. When would that happen? Well, maybe when Jesus is praying to God. That's plausible. But the basic point is, if you're empowered by God's Spirit in the sort of maximal way that Jesus is, right? John, Jesus says that God has given him his Spirit without measure. Maybe then you can heal people and even raise the dead without having to pray right at that moment. Maybe you've just been given the power and authority already and you just go in there and just do it. So yeah, you might think only God could do miracles without directly, immediately praying to God right before, but... That's just an assumption, and it's not clearly true. When the Trinity's podcast returns, can only God walk on water? Six, Jesus walks on water. According to Job chapter 9, verse 8, only God walks on water. On the slide, he wrote that according to Job 9, 8, that's something only God can do. Job 9, 8 doesn't say that. It says, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. So I think it's talking about creation and sort of bringing order to the chaos of the sea, although others would translate that he trampled the back of the sea dragon. 
it just flat doesn't say what he wants it to say, that anyone who walks on water is God, because only God can walk on water. In Matthew 9, we are told that for a short time, Peter successfully walks on water. But he's not Yahweh. That doesn't show that he's Yahweh. That shows that for that brief time, God was empowering him to do this miraculous deed. The reader of Mark presumes that it's by the power of God that Jesus is able to walk on water. It's just not a normal Old Testament teaching that, hey, anyone who walks on water is God, because only God can walk on water. No, look, that's just a miracle that an omnipotent and omniscient being can easily enable someone else to do. Yes, even a human being like Peter. So in some, the argument that only God can walk on water and Jesus walked on water, therefore Jesus just is God, that's obviously a valid argument. If both premises were true, the conclusion would have to be true. But there is no reason whatever to think that only God can walk on water, and there's a very solid reason to think that that claim is false, which is that there's another man besides Jesus, Peter, who actually walks on water, Granted, not too successfully, not very long, because he then wavers in faith and thinks and Jesus has to come be a lifeguard and pull him out. But yeah, why doesn't Jesus just have much greater faith and so much greater empowerment from God's Spirit than Peter has? But Dr. Lacona goes on to chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. Disciples are unable to cast out a demon. He does it. Later on, his disciples say, why couldn't we do that? And he says, well, fellows, this kind only comes out by praying to God. And I could see Peter talking to Philip and saying, he didn't pray. <laughs> well, not that you could see, not right then. But again, why would you think you knew that Jesus had never prayed about this? Maybe Jesus was better prayed up than them. And then that's why he could cast out this demon. And again, whenever someone points to a text and say, hey, this author thinks that Jesus and God are one and the same, do yourself a favor and just look in the rest of that chapter. And usually you will find a place where the author is clearly presupposing that Jesus and God are not the same, they're different, and therefore they are numerically two beings. So here, the transfiguration, verse 7, a cloud overshadows Jesus and the disciples he had with him, and from the cloud there came a voice, this is my son, the beloved, Listen to him. He said the voice is from God. This is obviously someone other than Jesus, and he calls Jesus his beloved son. So, no, this author doesn't collapse God and Jesus. Later in the chapter, verse 31, Jesus is teaching his disciples and says to them, The Son of Man is to be betrayed into human hands, and they will kill him, and three days after being killed, he will rise again. Right, and it's clear to the reader that the Son of Man here is Jesus, not God. Why? Because God is immortal and can't die, and because the Son of Man seems to be a reference to Daniel chapter 7, where the one like a Son of Man is not God, but it's somebody who's brought into God's presence and awarded with all of these amazing things. Mark chapters 12, 13, and 14. Jesus makes statements that he's not only David's son, but he's also David's Lord. 12, 13, 14, Jesus is the apocalyptic son of man who will be worshipped and served in a manner that should only be given to God. Well, that's not what Mark states, and that's not what the text in Daniel 7 states, that whoever should be worshipped just is God himself, because this figure there is raised to a position of worship. 
Is Jesus David's Lord? Of course. He's exalted over all other created beings. So the whole Gospel of Mark, from its very beginning and all throughout, is very clearly telling us about Jesus' character, who he is. Yes, Remember God's the, Christ. The, the painter very explicit trying to and communicate clear. that to us through the smile and through the eyes. Whereas Plutarch says the biographer is trying to communicate through what the person says and what the person did. What did Jesus say and do in the Gospel of Mark? By his very words and deeds, he's claiming to be God. That's incredible. That's amazingly wrong-headed. Yes, indeed, as David's Lord, Jesus in this book has a special relationship with God as his son, which makes him above all prophets, priests, kings, and even angels. But to be God's son implies to not be God himself, but to be someone else. And that someone else here in this portrayal of Mark clearly is a man. Dr. Lacona has not come anywhere close to showing that in this book, by his very words and deeds, Jesus is claiming to be God. The arguments that he gives seem to be very weak, and he seems to be constantly leaping beyond any conclusion that the author draws, whether in his own narrator's voice or in the voice of any of the characters. Their big point about Jesus throughout the book is that he's God's Christ, not that he's God. And it's incredibly unlikely that that would be the author's main point if he really thinks that Jesus is the one true God. Now, about Jesus' words and deeds, towards the end of his gospel, Luke records something very revealing. And this is in the incident on the road to Emmaus where Jesus appears to a couple of disciples and they don't realize it's him at first. So he asked them, what are they talking about? And They said, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? And Jesus, who they don't yet recognize, asked them, what things? And they replied, the things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And then they continue and say some further things. But it's very clear for multiple reasons that these disciples do not think that the point of Jesus' words and deeds was that he is God himself. First of all, they call him Jesus of Nazareth. That's what they consider to be his hometown. This is a man we're talking about. Second, they call him a prophet. A prophet is not God himself. A prophet is somebody who God sends and who represents God and who speaks on God's behalf. Of course, he's not just any prophet, but he's a prophet mighty in word and deed. Somebody who teaches amazing things and who does amazing things. Why? Because God is with him. That's the background assumption, just as with Elijah or Moses, for instance. And he's mighty in word and deed, they say, before God and all the people. You know, he's mighty in word and deed in the view of the crowd, but also in the view of God himself. So no, of course he's not God. And his deeds and his words don't even suggest to these people that he's God, much less require it. Okay, but here Dr. Lacona wants to appeal to John 10 when Jesus is appealing to his works as evidence. So let's hear what he says. Remember in the Gospel of John, they said, hey, if you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. And Jesus said, I have told you the works that I do they testify 
who I am. So in verse 24, it says, So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I have told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name testify to me. Right? These miracles that Jesus does don't show that he's God. They show that he really is God's Messiah. Now I'm going to skip over a very interesting exchange where they say he's claiming to be God. There's an interesting argument there I don't want to take the time to analyze. So check out my blog post called Jesus's Argument in John 10, which I'll put a link to on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. So I'm not going to cover that now. But anyway, in that exchange, he corrects them. He's not claiming to be God, but rather to be God's son. But after that, he says this, and this again, I think, makes the point about his works very clear. He says, verse 37, If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. In other words, they're working together. And so the reason he's doing the works of God is because God is in him, God is working through him. When you realize that, that's how you'll know that he really is God's Messiah, as he's been claiming. This is the actual point about Jesus' miracles in the Gospels. Not that he's God himself, and not that he has divine nature, because how could he do these miracles unless he has the divine essence or the divine nature? No, it's just proof that God really is with him. The idea is, it's only plausible that God himself would be empowering him to do such things. If God hadn't sent him, if he wasn't God's Christ, then he wouldn't be able to do these things, these works of the Father. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Lacona argues from a new topic, which is the biblical phrase, Son of Man. find the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7 in the Old Testament. We find it in a piece of Jewish literature named First Enoch, which by the way, First Enoch is quoted in the letter of Jude toward the end of our New Testament. First Enoch, most of it was written sometime in the late first century BC and early first century AD. And then later on, they added to it sometime in the late first century. But it's not Christian literature, it's Jewish literature. And then fourth Ezra, probably second century. It all reads kind of similar. In fact, if you read First Enoch and Fourth Ezra, it reads a lot like Revelation. But it talks about the Son of Man, this apocalyptic Son of Man. And in Fourth Ezra, he's referred to as the elect one. But in First Enoch and Daniel 7, he's called the Son of Man. Now, I'm not going to read from these texts because it would take a, a lot of time. Let me just give you eight characteristics of the Son of Man, this apocalyptic Son of Man that you find in these texts. Number one, he will appear as a light to the Gentiles. Number two, he will appear before God. Which requires Number not three, being God. He will appear before all mankind on the clouds of heaven. Number four. 
God will make him preside over judgment. Which requires that he's not God himself, right? He will wipe away all evil. Number six, he will rule over all. Number seven, he will sit on a glorious throne. And number eight, he will be worshipped and served as only God is, the God who shares his glory with no one. These are eight characteristics of this apocalyptic son of man that we find in Daniel 7, 1st Enoch, and 4th Ezra. Of course, his gloss on the worship topic is super controversial. I think he's just assuming that in principle, it could never be right to worship anybody unless they are God himself. But you just see in Revelation chapter 5, Jesus being brought before God, who was already introduced in chapter 4, and both of them are worshipped. And arguably, Jesus is worshipped to the glory of God, as Paul says in Philippians 2. Even in Daniel 7, you can read it as this one like a son of man being elevated to a position where he deserves worship, but that doesn't mean he's God. That just means that God has highly exalted him, right? Question is, did Jesus claim to be the son of man? Yes, he did. And what is the son of man? Some would say, well, the son of man in the Gospel of Mark just means he was human. Mm-mm. We're talking about this kind of son of man. Jesus says this in Matthew and Luke, and for those of you who have studied this a little more, you've heard of the Q source. Let me just fill you in who've never heard of the Q source. It's not a mystery or anything like this. Most New Testament scholars today acknowledge that the Gospel of Mark was written first and that Matthew and Luke used Mark as one of their sources. You say, well, why would Matthew, if he was a disciple of Jesus, why would he use Mark? Well, because church tradition tells us that Mark had Peter, the lead apostle, as his primary source. So why not use Peter, something based on Peter's testimony, because he was the lead apostle and authority. Moreover, Peter was with Jesus at certain events, like the prayer in the garden, the raising of Jairus' daughter, the transfiguration where Matthew wasn't there. So there's going to be stories Peter knew that's going to be recorded in Mark that Matthew wasn't privy to because he wasn't there. And Luke said he got his information from eyewitnesses, and of course Peter would have been one of those, and so Mark would have pretty much been Peter's memoirs to an extent. So why not use that as an eyewitness? So here's the thing. If the story is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, then scholars say, well, it probably comes from Mark is the source. If it's in Matthew and Mark, but not in Luke, they say that Matthew got the story from Mark. If it's in Luke and Mark, but not in Matthew, Luke got the story from Mark. But there are over 200 verses in Matthew and Luke that are very similar, sometimes almost word for word, but they're not in Mark. So that leaves one of three options. Either Luke used Matthew as a source, or Matthew used Luke as a source, or Matthew and Luke had a common source, be that oral tradition or a written source. So most scholars think that it was this common source that they used, and so they call that Q. And the reason being is the German word for source is quella, and they just abbreviate that with the letter Q. That's all Q is. Yeah. Now, do they know a majority that a view, not an indisputable no. view, but a majority view? There was this Q source. Was it oral tradition or was it written? We don't know. Most scholars think it was written. Was it a gospel of its own? Probably not, because it only involves the sayings of Jesus. So I tend to think it could very well have been some notes one of the apostles took down when Jesus taught and took that along with them. It's very conceivable that that could be the Q source. Wouldn't that be cool? When Jesus says, everything has been entrusted to me by my Father, that's found in the Q material. It's in Matthew and Luke, almost word for word. We also find it in John. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. 
And because of this, most scholars admit that John is an independent source of the other Gospels. So you have multiple independent sources here. Pretty cool. All right, let's look at something else. John chapter 5, verses 22 through 29. For not even the Father judges anyone, and he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Remember the eight characteristics of the Son of Man? He will judge the world. Right. So if God has given in some sense all things to Jesus, and Jesus has gotten all things from God, and that presupposes that there are two. One is the source of the all things, and one is the recipient of the all things. And if Jesus has been given authority to execute judgment because he's the Son of Man, we know he's not God in this very text for two reasons. One of which is that he gets authority to execute judgment. God does not need to get authority to execute judgment from anyone. He just automatically has authority over creation as the sovereign and unique creator of it. So that he gets authority to execute judgment shows that he's not God. And it says that he's given this because he is the son of man. In other words, the one predicted in Daniel 7. Yeah, but again, we know that that's not God himself. It's fashionable to use the weasel word divine figure about this one, you know, which kind of rides the line between saying that it's that he's uh, fully divine or that he's not. But this is what it says in Daniel 7:13, as I watched in the night visions, I saw one like a human being, that's one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven, and he came to the ancient one, that's God, and was presented before him. To him, that is, the one like a human being, was given dominion and glory and kingship that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away, and his kingship is one that shall never be destroyed. Right, This everlasting kingship or dominion is what he gets from God. It's given to him by God. That's the meaning here. All Christians and Jews should agree that since there have been any intelligent creatures, God has never for a moment lacked dominion and kingship over them. But this one like a son of man is brought before God and given those things by God. Right, so it's not God. You could say that this exalted one is a divine figure in some sense, if only in the sense that he has a divine position over all people's nations and languages, such that they should serve him. But this is why Jesus being the Son of Man doesn't do anything to support the notion that Jesus just is God himself, that God and Jesus are one and the same. In fact, it supports that they are numerically two. Because one already had dominion, and the other one is at this time, in this vision, given dominion by the first one. So they're two different ones. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. Paul doesn't call Jesus the Son of Man here, but he attributes to Jesus the same role. He's doing the same thing. So he says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. Now it's interesting, this is the only time that this phrase, word of the Lord, in this particular Greek construction is used. It's the only time it appears in the New Testament. And it probably means that this we say to you by the teachings of Jesus. Yes. That Jesus, what I'm giving to That's you. That's what it said, means. That's what most commenters say. Of Jesus himself. So it's not mm-hmm. like a prophetic 
utterance from someone with the gift of prophecy. What? Oh, he has a word from the Lord. Not that. This is a teaching of Jesus. <laughs> Wait a second, partner. Just because it's a teaching of Jesus doesn't tell you that it's not a word from the Lord God Almighty. It's a clear theme of the fourth gospel that Jesus gets his message from God. So it's a false dichotomy to say either this is a teaching of Jesus or it's a prophecy, you know, a word of the Lord that's given to another to deliver. It can be both of those things. It should be both of those things, right? Because Jesus is held to be the fulfillment of this future prophet that's predicted by Moses in Deuteronomy 18. Okay. This we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. He's coming back in judgment. That's the second coming. It's the son of man, the apocalyptic son of man he's talking mm -hmm. about here. And he's saying this is a teaching of Jesus. Yeah. He's going to come back. So you've got Paul, you've got John, you've got the Q material. Let me give you one more. This comes from Mark. This is at Jesus' trial before the high priest, Caiaphas. Well, hang on. Before we get to this part, what he's driving as when Jesus makes a reference to the Son of Man prophecy in Daniel. But let's not skip Mark 14, 55, which says, Now the chief priests and the whole council were looking for testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none, for many gave false testimony against him, and their testimony did not agree. Some stood up and gave false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. But even on this point, their testimony did not agree. Now let me ask you this. If Jesus had gone around claiming, Hey guys, I am God himself, would that have been found sufficient evidence in the eyes of his Jewish opponents, mind you, for him to be found a blasphemer and to be put to death? I think so. I think that would count as blasphemy. For support, remember John 10, where Jesus famously says in verse 30, the Father and I are one. And the next verse says, the Jews took up stones again to stone him. And when Jesus asks them why, they say it's because he, even though he's merely a human being, is making himself God. Now, the author's perspective is they're misunderstanding him, as what follows makes clear, but the point is, if they think someone's claiming to be God himself, yes, that would be sufficient to make that person guilty of blasphemy in the way that these Second Temple Jews are thinking about blasphemy. But now, if that really was the whole point of Jesus's ministry, that he's going around constantly and even clearly implying that he's God himself, then we have to ask, when it comes to his trial, Okay, where are the people who heard him say this? Or never mind if he didn't say it, even if he just was clearly implying it all the time by forgiving sins, by healing people, by saying that he's binding Satan. If Jesus is going around just implying all the time that he's God, you'll have plenty of witnesses that are readily available to come forward and say, this guy claims to be God. Let's get rid of him. Yeah, but that doesn't happen. So they flounder around with these lesser accusations and they come up with various things, but they don't seem to stick. Okay. So finally, after this nonsense, the high priest kind of takes things into his own hands. And that's where Dr. Lacona wants to pick it up. And finally, after talking to him for a while, Caiaphas says, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power 
and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his clothes and said, why do we still need witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him of being deserving of death. Now, why was he guilty of blasphemy here? It's not blasphemy to claim to be the Messiah, the Christ. There had been many people who had claimed to be the Messiahs, and yet they were never charged with blasphemy. It's not blasphemy to claim to be the Son of God. After all, prophets, priests, kings, angels, Israel herself had been called Son of God. Jesus could have gotten out of that one easily, right? What got Jesus the charge of blasphemy is that he claimed to be the Son of Man who would come in judgment, who would be given honors and glory that only belonged to God himself. Imagine in light of this. Here's the scene. Jesus is on trial and the high priest says, all right, look, just come out. Tell us clearly, are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? Right, that's the question. Jesus knew hour had come. And he said, yes and yes. I'm going to go a little further. You know that Son of Man in Daniel 7 who's going to ride the clouds, that divine figure divine who everybody's figure. going to worship and serve as they would serve God? Well, guess what, guys? That's me. You think you're judging me now? Huh, I got news for you. I'm going to judge you because I'm going to be sitting as a co-occupant on God's throne, riding the clouds, and I'm going to come and I'm going to make you a footstool for my feet. You think you're judging me? No, I'm going to judge you because I am that son of man, because my father and I were made of the same stuff. Blasphemy. Made of the same divine stuff. <sighs> this is kind of irresponsible to just give a wild gloss on the text that has no basis in the text. Nothing about it assumes that Jesus is God or hints that Jesus is God, and nothing about it hints that Jesus is made of the same stuff as God or that they have the same nature and essence both Jesus and the high priest are distinguishing between God and the Messiah. The high priest refers to God as the blessed one. Jesus says that as the son of man, he'll be seated at the right hand of the power. The power there is God. He's not claiming to be God. He's claiming that he'll be seated at the right hand of the power that is at the right hand of God and that he'll be coming on the clouds of heaven with him. None of this presupposes that Jesus is God himself or that Jesus has the divine nature and all the divine attributes, etc. Why do they think it's blasphemy? Look, we already know they don't think he's claiming to be God because they would have found someone to bring that accusation. And also the high priest would not have said, come on, come out with it. Are you the Messiah? He would get straight to the much more obnoxious thing. If he could, he'd go straight to the claim that Jesus thinks he's God himself, but he doesn't. So why do they think this is blasphemous? There's been a lot of recent scholarship on this, but bottom line, they just have a kind of expansive concept of blasphemy. They just think that the chutzpah here is just inexcusable. Not only does he think he's the Messiah, but he's saying that he's going to be seated at God's right hand and that they will see him. He will be their judge and their leader. That's kind of suggested here, and they just find that outrageous. So they call that blasphemy, like it's insulting God somehow. Now, we also know they don't think he's God because of what happens next. It says, all of them condemned him as deserving death. Some began to spit on him, to blindfold him, and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. The guards also took him over and beat him. Now, when they taunt him by yelling prophesy to him, that shows that they are understanding him to be falsely claiming to be the Messiah, which is a kind of prophet. 
in their view, they think he's a false prophet. Clearly, they don't think that he's claiming to be God himself. Now, if somebody was claiming to be God himself, you probably would just think that that person was crazy and should be pitied and not smacked around. But if you were going to be in a smacking mood, you would go, smack, smack, why don't you just kill me, God Almighty? Smack, smack, you don't seem very almighty to me. Smack, smack, you don't seem like you're omnipotent and omniscient, etc. You seem like just a puny little guy. Smack, smack. Right? But they don't do that because they think he's falsely claiming to be God's Messiah, which has been the whole issue since the start of the conversation. That's why they taunt him, urging him to prophesy, right? Because they think he can't, because they think he's a false prophet. So nothing about divine nature, nothing about Jesus being God himself, and no, sorry, nothing about the Father and the Son being made of the same stuff. Nor is Jesus' claim to be the Son of Man a claim to be ontologically equal to God. There is a kind of equality of position, you could say, because God's going to raise Jesus up to his throne. But that's the only kind of equality between God and Jesus not yet realized, which is in view in this passage. Okay, so here's Dr. Lacona's closing statement, as it were. It's pretty clear. It's in Q, it's in John, it's in Mark, it's in Paul. We have multiple independent sources here, all attesting that Jesus was claiming to be this divine, apocalyptic son of man. We have reason, historically speaking, to think that Jesus actually claimed to be God in this way. This is huge. You know, we hold our Bibles in our hands and we say, this is one book, without realizing this is 66 books and letters written by numerous authors. It was only later that these things were collected and compiled into a single volume. So when we're talking about John, when we're talking about Mark and Paul and all these, these are independent sources. We're not talking about just one source, the Bible. We're talking about multiple independent sources. Well, somewhat independent for Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Paul's saying this goes back to Jesus himself and his teaching. We have every reason to believe that Jesus claimed to be God in this sense. Mm Mm-mm. And so, in conclusion... No, not at all. And it's different literary forms. So you have biography, letters, sayings, literature. This is the strongest kind of multiple attestation we, a historian can look for. So, summarizing, there are two key truths that render it more probable than not that Jesus claimed to be God. Number one, the earliest Christian, Jesus' apostles, regarded Jesus as divine. Not second, for anything that's been shown. The best explanation for key truth, number one, is Jesus claimed to be divine as evidence in the New Testament suggests. And we talked about biography and Son of Man. Well, the best explanation claim is a bit much, because we haven't looked at any other explanations. But at any rate, the foundational fact that the earliest Christians thought that Jesus was God, uh, it's kind of bewildering that anybody could look at these sources and think that, when these sources are constantly distinguishing between Jesus and God, when they're portraying the Father as Jesus as God. And when they're portraying Jesus as a man who, unlike the essentially immortal God, dies, and who serves God, who's sent by God, etc. How could you even look at these and think, hey, Jesus and God are just one and the same here, guys? The answer is mainstream Christian tradition. It's traditional to think that. And so if you come to these sources with that presupposition firmly in hand, hey, look, either Jesus is God or he's just a guy. Like he's just another human teacher. Maybe he has some good traits, but he's going to be on the same level as Muhammad and the Buddha. No. I mean, the New Testament perspective is Jesus is a man, yes, 
but he's an incredibly special and important man, namely God's Christ. And for all the hint hunting that we've seen, for all the suggestions, for all the attempts to draw Jesus' God inferences out of different passages, we're just still faced with one really stark fact, which is that the thesis statement of all four New Testament Gospels is not that Jesus is God. It's that Jesus is God's Christ, God's Messiah, the Son of God. Yes, even the Gospel according to John. And it's very improbable on the face of it that these authors are thinking, hey, Jesus is just the one God himself. Jesus is God, or that Jesus is fully divine. It's incredible that they should think that, and that as their main thesis, they should write something which the early modern biblical Unitarian Socinus could love, which is that Jesus is God's Christ. Why would they pull back? Why would they soft pedal like that? They wouldn't. They don't have to hide this message at that point. They want to proclaim their message from the rooftops. And they did. But it wasn't the message that Jesus is God. It was the message that Jesus was God's Christ. Explicitly a man. Son of man, yes. Son of God, yes. Uniquely important, yes. Raised up to a kind of equality with God, yes. But they don't confuse the one Lord with the one God. And they don't confuse the Lord Jesus Christ with the Lord God Almighty. If we're to be good Protestants, then when we see that later Christian traditions clash with clear scriptural teaching, we have to side with clear scriptural teaching. That's what discipleship to Jesus demands. That's what it demanded in the 16th century, and that's what it demands in the 21st century. This week's thinking music has been the track Moon Shadow by Little Glass Men. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can listen to or download that entire track. You'll also want to check out the blog post there for a lot of relevant links. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.